everyone and welcome back to All The Hype. I know it's been a while, I've had a lot of technical issues, but we are finally back. And today we're going to be talking all things about work assessments and job performance, which I think is really important, especially if you're like me and you're applying to a lot of jobs right now. Or if you're anyone who works, you'll be reviewed and assessed regarding your job performance at some point. I learned a lot from this conversation and I will definitely bear in mind some things that Dr. Duncan Jackson has told me about today within my own job applications. I also forgot to say Professor Michael Clinton's words of wisdom from last episode were to look after your well-being. Yes, I'm telling you right now, okay? I see you working extremely hard and that's great, but you're gonna crash and burn. Please take some time for yourself. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit with me. Um, For those who don't know who you are, could you give us a little like whistle-stop tour of your career and what exactly you do? Sure, yeah. So uh, my name is Duncan Jackson. Mm -hmm. And I started my career a long time ago, back when Dinosaurs roamed the earth, probably. But um, yeah, I, I was um, first of all, I was a, a consultant in New Zealand. I think that's when my my career started, and I was working in assessment, mm. um, and that's assessment for selection. So if you're choosing someone for a, a job, um, yeah, that that type of assessment. Um, but I didn't really like that very much, to be honest. So I not not as a kind of as the only career trajectory that I had, I was more interested in in research, really. That was my kind of passion. So I went and did a PhD, uh, also an assessment. Um, and then, yeah, I started working as an academic, uh, researching an assessment. And <laughs> that's kind of been a, um, a continuing theme for me. So I've worked in... New Zealand uh, at Massey University, and then I went to South Korea and worked at Seoul Shiripdehakyo, which is uh, in English that's uh, Seoul City University, and I worked there for a few years, and um, then came to England and worked as a consultant again. Decided I didn't like it, <laughs> and then <Right>. again, <laughs> as if I couldn't figure that out the first time, and then um, and then I went to. Uh, I've been to several universities in the UK. So started out at the University of East London, then went to Birkbeck and stayed there for quite a while, actually, about four or five years. And now I'm at King's. And I'm very happy at King's. I like it here. (laughs) Nice. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It is. Um, So what made you want to focus on, like, researching different types of ratings assessments in particular? Well, I was very interested in... Um, in research methods, in a way, mm. um, I just like the idea of statistical analysis, and it's quite a conceptual idea. I think, um, you know, when people hear that, they sort of think, "Oh, it's maths." Uh, but <laughs> actually, I think it's far more conceptual in a way, um, and that really appeals to me because you need to think about these ideas about data distributions and that kind of thing. So that that oriented me towards industrial organizational psychology which is really my primary area of research um and also when i was an undergraduate i um 
I was in a department that was quite heavily involved in behaviorism. So right. I don't know if you've come across behaviorism. It's not very popular these days. It's kind of a niche subject, but it used to be very popular in the 1960s and 70s with the likes of B.F. Skinner. Yeah. And yeah, and my department at the University of University of Auckland, I believe it's still like that, were quite big on that topic. And it got me kind of thinking about this idea of evaluation in context. So what does the environment do to people essentially and in, in terms of their output behavior? How does it affect their output behavior? Um, and that really got me interested in that idea. And I remember as a graduate student, we started learning about assessment centers. And assessment centers are interesting because, and no doubt some of the listeners to, to this podcast will actually go through them or have already been through them. But essentially what happens is you go through a range of different exercises, like group exercises, role plays, that kind of thing. And people observe you and take notes and things like that. And the questions in my mind were, well, how do those different scenarios affect people's behavior and how do they make them behave differently? And how does their performance vary across the different um, scenarios that they're being exposed to? And that's been a continuing line of research for me uh, up until the present day. Yeah, I think they're extremely interesting, which we will come on to later. But firstly, I wanted to ask you about like situational judgment tests, because I know that they're also a very vital part of the application process and the hiring process. So I actually read one of your papers about situational judgment tests. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the findings was that the skills assessed and the situations had very little kind of impact on actual participant performance. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. So what do you think actually determines the scores? So uh, I think you're talking about the Journal of Occupational Organizational Psychology paper. It's 2017, if my memory serves correct. I'm yeah, not it was, sure, but it was right about then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we found there was that the the element of the measurement design that was leading to any sort of reliable evaluation was general performance. A general evaluation of someone's performance relative to another person's general performance. Um, and that had nothing to do pretty much with the dimensions that were being assessed. So that's the communication skills, teamwork, tolerance, those kinds of variables. It didn't have anything to do with the scenarios that they were involved in either. Um, so what is being assessed in that general performance? Well, we don't know yet, actually. It might have something to do with uh, general mental ability, and it might have something to do with uh, personality, but probably more general mental ability in this case, because people are actually having to solve problems in a situational judgment test. Um, so that seems to be the likely candidate. And we know that um, general mental ability correlates with job performance. And we know that situational judgment test outcomes correlate with job performance. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but for the average person, they, they do seem to correlate with job performance. So um, if general performance is the only factor that seems to make up the reliability of the assessment, then that does sort of lead one to suspect that maybe it's about uh, general mental ability that's leading to that that correlation. But we don't know for sure yet, and more research needs to be done on that. 
Right. So you think that people should improve their ability in like problem solving and just kind of their overall kind of cognitive ability in terms of in terms of maximizing their performance on these types of tools? Yes. Uh, Yeah. So, I I mean, I would say the first thing to do if if you wanted to maximize your performance is that you want to get to your upper baseline level of performance on these types of tests. And that doesn't just relate to um, situational judgment tests. That really relates to any sort of performance-based test. Not so much personality because that's not performance. That's just about your preferences. But if it's about performance, then you want to get up to your baseline level of maximal performance, if that makes sense. So you want to get over these practice effects, essentially. You want to know what the test is about and practice to the extent that you are at your optimum performance, just like you would with if you were training for the Olympics or something. You, you would want to, <laughs> you'd want to train uh, up to the point where you know this is your this is your top level that you could potentially achieve, right? Um, so I would say uh, get hold of any practice tests that you can get hold of and practice them. Um, get hold of um, any sample situational judgment tests if that's what you, you're going to be involved in doing. And yeah, practice them and get up to that optimal level of performance. Um, and that includes GMA tests. So uh, with general mental ability tests, um, you can practice those too. I mean, there are books written on this. So if you do a search of the local bookstore, the online bookstore, um, then you're likely to find tests. So there was one that I, I looked at ages ago when I was looking at jobs, and it was called How to Win at Aptitude Tests. I don't know if that's still available. It was pretty good, but I'm sure okay. there are other um, books that are along the same sorts of lines that give you practice tests, and I very much recommend that you do that if if you want to sort of maximize your performance on these types of evaluations. Yeah, that makes sense, and I think... It is so simple, but people just forget these simple things. So now I wanted to talk about assessment centres, which you were talking about earlier. Um, And I thought it was really interesting, like, how assessors look for skills such as communication, but they don't actually come up in sort of measuring performance. I think I read something about that. Um, So how do assessors actually rate people? Is it different depending on the different tasks that they give as participants or...? Yeah, so this is the weird anomaly about assessment centres, and actually, it's not a it's not an an anomaly that is specific to assessment centres. So we see it in other forms of evaluation as well, but it's probably most famous, uh, famously identified in the assessment centre literature, and that's because I think that's where it was identified uh, first, because it was identified back in nineteen in the nineteen fifties. by a guy called Sakoda, um, and he was looking at at old CIA data. Sakoda looked at uh, what are called factor structures. So he looked at whether the assessment centres were rating what people claimed that they measured. So, so variables like communication skills, tolerance, that kind of thing. And what he found is that they didn't, and instead they measured exercise effects. Now, this um, this finding was repeated uh, in a better-known study by Sackett and Dreher, and that was back in 1982. 
And they found the same thing. So they found exercise effects. So what do these exercise effects mean? Well, they mean that you could perform, say, quite well on one of the exercises, but not so well on another. And maybe your uh, performance is middling on yet another exercise. So your performance varies according to the exercise that you're involved in. So let's look at a sort of real world example for an individual and how that might look. Uh, so take me, for example. Um, I don't really go for group exercises, to be honest. I clam up a bit and <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm a bit shy or something or don't like crowds or whatever the case may be. So in a group exercise, I'm probably not going to give you too much output behavior. And as a result, I'm probably going to be rated a bit lower. Okay. It's a bit, a bit of a shame. One-on-one -on -one interview, though, I think I'm okay with that. So mm. I'm going to feel more comfortable talking to one person one-on-one, -on -one, and that's absolutely fine with me. So I might be rated higher on that one. So my mm -hmm. performance has now varied according to the exercise in which I find myself. In the group exercise, I'm rated a bit lower. Uh, in the... One-on-one uh, -on -one exercise, I'm rated a bit higher, and there are reasons for that according to how I perform in those different situations. With respect to the uh, dimensions that, that the assessors are supposed to be evaluating, we see almost no variance associated with those. So we've done a few studies, and they're um, consistent with, with other studies in this area, where we find that dimensions explain somewhere between 1% and 2% of the variance in assessment centre ratings, which in that context is virtually nothing. It won't make any difference to reliability. It will not predict variance in performance, which is what you typically want to do with these types of measures, because it's such a small amount of variance. You can't, you can't explain variation in a job performance measure with a predictor that has no variation in itself. And so, yeah, this is um, this is a bit of a problem. It's almost like the assessors are bypassing the dimensions altogether and just making some sort of evaluation as it relates to performance on each exercise. So it's like a, an overall evaluation for each exercise. Oh, yeah, you did well on the, the group exercise, but not so well on the one-on-one um, -on -one role play, which would be the opposite to what I'd actually get. But I'm sure you'd do well on all of them. So you will get some people who do well on all, all of them as well. That is a, um, that's a, a viable outcome. But as mm. on the whole, performance seems to generally be contingent on the exercise in which each assessee finds themselves. Now, this has created a bit of a problem and a bit of a controversy because a lot of companies, a lot of individuals do not like this story at all. <laughs> they really don't. I mean, partly it's because some companies uh, develop dimensions and they don't like the idea that they are not actually being measured as, as intended. And there's some companies that have invested a lot in them, a lot of time, a lot of money. And to hear that they don't work, well, that's not a really great story to hear back from, um, from researchers. So, yeah, it's certainly not a popular outcome by any stretch, but it is one that we see routinely. And we see this as a problem not only in assessment centres, but also in performance ratings, in SJTs and in some other measures as well. Yeah. I mean, 
do you think there are biases then to how the hiring process works and how organizations actually select who to hire and who to not so by bias uh, I presume you're talking about biases associated with assessors. Yes. So the assessors hold some sort of unconscious bias, perhaps, or maybe they have a there's a like me bias. I don't know if you've come across that one where people want to hire people who are similar to them. Oh, yes. Yes, I have heard of that. So you let's say you suddenly make mention of the fact that you have um, a penchant for uh obscure italian prog rock music which i really like and then i sort of think wow I, this person has the same taste as me i really like them and they're like me i'm gonna hire them we'll get along like a house on fire that kind of bias so that's another type of bias there's halo biases there's horn biases a halo bias is um a sort of general positive impression and a horn bias is the opposite so a general negative impression so, yeah, I mean, um, is that the reason why we see exercise effects? Good question. And the answer is no. We know that it's not because of biases. And you might well wonder, well, how do we know that? Well, the reason is because we see these exercise effects emerge even when assessor effects. So we could, we're actually able to study effects specific to rater or assessor idiosyncrasies and what we tend to find is that these effects are really small right so it's not that whatever the reason is it's not that mm. um it could be that the dimensions just simply don't work in the manner intended that seems to be a a, a likely outcome, at least in my mind, given how often we see this result over and over again, independent of assessor biases. Um, and it might also be that the exercises are quite quite profound in terms of their influence on behavior. Mm. And it might be that there are not many exercises as well. So in an assessment center, for usually for economic and um, practical reasons, they keep the number of exercises quite low. So it'll usually be around three or maybe four max. Any more than that is just getting too expensive and unwieldy. Um, but if you imagine, if let's say we had an assessment center with 100 exercises, then you might find that the performance of a given individual uh, will be averaged across all those different exercises. And then you might see some stronger dimension effects. But the problem is that's, never going to happen because no one can afford to uh, set up a hundred exercises. If they did, it would be very interesting. Um, but I just can't see that happening because it's not really practical. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like a hundred tasks. I don't see who would have the time or the money to do that. Um, but in the case of the whole like hiring process, do organizations take averages from assessment centers or do they take each one individually? So uh, there, there is an application of dimensions, and there's even academic research on this where people have averaged across observations of the same dimension to arrive at dimension scores. Right. That doesn't mean that the exercise effects have gone. They're still there. <laughs> but um, And just because we average across 
observations of the same dimension and create an average for that dimension, it doesn't mean that that dimension actually works. So mm. I think the mistake here is that there's actually a process we need to follow before we average anything. So before you average any observations or any item responses or anything like that, you first have, a, have to have a justification for doing so. So if you take a, a simple example, like with a, um, let's say a questionnaire that you're using in some psychological study, and the questionnaire has 12 items, and you want justification for averaging it, then usually what you would do is you would estimate coefficient alpha. Yeah. So across the 12 items, you've got coefficient alpha, and you, now you've got evidence if the um, if the estimate for alpha is above, usually it's 0.7, although that is contested. Um, if it's above 0.7, um, you've got justification for averaging across those 12 items. It's no different in any other context, including in assessment centers. You have to have justification for averaging across observations of the same dimension before you do that. You wouldn't usually use coefficient alpha in that case, though, because it's not quite built to cope with all of the complexity of an assessment center. You'd need something else. And usually what you'd need to use is what's called generalizability theory, which is like a, a logical extension of coefficient alpha to a, a multifaceted type arrangement like you have with assessment centers. And ideally, you would use multivariate generalizability theory so that you could estimate reliability for each dimension. And only then would you have a justification for averaging in that way. Now, to my knowledge, I know of no such scenario where th that justification has been provided. Um, and yet you still see uh, people in practice using averages based on dimensions. Now, one of the key applications of that is development. So I might say to you, Mm -hmm. Well, your communication skills. What I've done here is I've averaged across your observations of your communication skills, and they look a little low. So I think what you need to do is uh, spend a whole bunch of company resources developing your communication skills. But then you, as someone who applies statistical analyses and all this sort of thing, look back into the ratings and you look to see whether there is actually evidence that these communication skills have been measured in the first place. And what you find is that there is no evidence of that, which is the, by the way, the typical outcome with an assessment center. So essentially what's happened is that you as an employee have wasted your time and the company has wasted its time and its resources getting you to develop skills that it never measured in the first place. My mind is blown. That's insane. Quite literally. So they will have these tests, they'll measure you, but then they'll have no justification or backing in order to do so. And then think you have weaknesses in areas which you don't even have weaknesses, basically. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that, is a, <laughs> that is a potential outcome. Unless there's some justification for averaging in the first place mm. in the way that they're intending, it may be the case yeah. that that these variables are just not being measured, and therefore they are not only unhelpful but potentially damaging. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what advice would you give to someone in order to tackle these assessment centres? I've heard so many things from people, like they tell me, like, 
oh, you need to like be louder in group settings in order to maximize your performance output, like what you were saying earlier. Would you showcase like your abilities in order to get a job in the first place? Okay, so I think we need to focus on what we know. So you want to maximize your performance in an assessment center. That's the aim here. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So one thing we do know is that people who are higher on uh, measures of extroversion Mm -hmm. tend to do better on average in assessment centers. Not massively surprising because... What do extroverted people do? <laughs> you must know some extra extroverted people in your life. Uh, and I'm talking about extroversion on a dimension, not this typology stuff for which there is almost no empirical evidence. Uh, it's dimensional. So some people are more extremely extroverted. Some people are less so. And there are varying gradients in between, right? So if you think about someone who's ex- on the extreme, then they're going to say a lot. They're going to talk a lot. They're going to probably make a lot of hand gestures and (laughs) I don't know, but there'll be a lot of behavior to, to rate. And as a consequence, they're probably more likely to get rated higher just because they're, they're generating more information for the assessors to, to grapple with. Um, The other thing that we know, the other outcome that we know is that there is a, a small positive correlation between GMA scores and doing well on an assessment center. Again, not a massive shock. People that can figure out problems more readily tend to do better on assessment centers. Well, an assessment center really is a series of problem-solving exercises, so you would you would expect that. In fact, if you found the opposite, it would be a bit surprising and people would be scratching their heads all over the place. So yeah. what can you do about that? Well, I think, again, it's a matter of practice. If there's an opportunity for you to practice with other people in a group exercise type setting. And you can, by the way, get hold of group exercises. There's no, like, this is not sort of secret stuff. If you if you do an online search, you'll find some and you'll be able to um, participate perhaps in a group of friends or something like that or family members who are willing and have time. Um, practice this because part of it is building your confidence, I think, and maybe appearing more extroverted than you really are. I mean, hey, that's okay. You have to get through life somehow, right? And sometimes you kind of have to act a little bit, and and that's that's okay. I don't think it's being disingenuous. I think it's just building your confidence. This is why a lot of people, I mean, I know people who suffer from shyness, and they go to acting class, and it works. It's great. I mean, it helps build confidence and that sort of social confidence, and that's exactly what is going to benefit you in an assessment center exercise. Um, and also, I think by practicing, you're you're practicing the kinds of problems that you will be exp- that you will be exposed to in that scenario. So you're working through these kinds of problems, and you're um, you're practicing them. And I think that's got to be helpful for you to reach that baseline level of performance that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Just a whole lot of practice. That's all you need to do, guys. Just keep practicing with people. Yeah, it's um, no different to playing a musical instrument. Yeah. Um, if you're going to yeah. get up and play a riffing guitar solo, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to practice it before you get up there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but just coming back to the whole, like, the ways that assessors uh, mark you, just because my mind is genuinely blown. What is your opinion on the current assessor training? I'm guessing you don't think that it's 
good enough and like how would you change it no see i think that's a, a that's a common misconception in a way i think is that well we're not measuring dimensions and therefore the assessors are doing something wrong mm-hmm. and th- this has been a, this was a focus for research particularly in the 90s where they were trying everything they possibly could and if you look at like some of the uh, articles that were written in the 1990s, they were just trying everything they could to get assessors to rate dimensions, and they just didn't. Um, but it turns out, I think, that the assessors are just doing their job. It's just that the dimensions don't work very well, because what are the expectations around these dimensions? They're expecting assessors to be able to see them as relatively stable variables across different exercises, and that just I mean, given that you might not even see the same assessor even in a different exercise, if you go to the next exercise, you might be rated by somebody else. Um, although the assessor effects are small, this is a this is a big ask for to get mm-hmm. assessors to see traits across exercises in a small number of exercises. It just doesn't seem like a reasonable expectation at all. I mean, it's hard enough. Yeah to find uh, stable attributes or to be sensitive to stable attributes in a a simple questionnaire, let alone bring about the complexities associated with an assessment centre, it's just adding more and more difficulty to that scenario. And the number of observations is probably too small for that type of assessment anyway. So the assessors seem to be doing their job quite well actually the assessor effects are small we know that so the biases have pretty much been dealt with i mean i'm sure there are um, exceptions to the rule but on average that seems to be the case and the other thing we know is that assessment center ratings overall ratings predict job performance they're not the strongest predictor that we've got sure but they're still pretty good and they're they reliably predict performance. We've shown that across multiple studies. So um, I don't think the assessors are at fault. And I think assessor training is also pretty good too. So typically, if it's a high quality assessment center, they'll use some sort of standard setting training, like um, it's called frame of reference training. And what it does is it helps assessors to essentially have a shared understanding about what constitutes lower performance versus higher levels of performance and it's pretty good it works quite well i mean there's lots of evidence dating back to uh, some of the early work on this Um, i know elaine pulakos did some work on this area and it's shown to be um, pretty good and we've got some more more up-to-date research Um, so that research was back in the 80s we've got some more up-to-date research on frame of reference training and it works pretty well so yeah, I don't think the assessors are the problem here. In fact, I think a, a lot of the time, like when you see, this is a different area and it's not my area, but with subgroup differences, which is a highly controversial topic, you'll see sometimes the finger of blame is pointed to the assessors. But mm. um, but there are blind studies showing that actually it's not the assessors that are behind that. Yeah, yeah. so I think the assessors, they're doing a pretty good job. I think the problem might be actually with the dimensions themselves and the expectations around those dimensions. No, that makes sense because I think people can confuse the two. That's why I wanted to ask your 
opinion on that. And I think yeah. you're right that people blame the assessors all the time. And I even hear people being like, oh, it's just because like she didn't like me. That's why I didn't get it. But obviously it's like more nuanced and complica- complicated than just someone not liking you or whatever. I mean, it, it might be the case that the assessor didn't like the individual, but on average, um, that does not seem to be the case. Because if that was the case, if it was, if variation was dependent on assessors, then that's what you would see. You would see an effect, um, an interaction between variants of assessees and variants of um, assessors. So there would be an interaction. So the sensitivity to performance of assessees would be dependent on the assessor who's evaluating them. And we know from several studies that that's not the case. We don't see those sorts of interactions. That makes sense. And what is AI's like role within all of this? Because I know organizations will use it to kind of screen out an initial CV or a cover letter. Like, are they used within these types of assessments as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, oh, you mean with assessment centers? So there's certain, mm. there's yeah, certain or just use... like rating assessments, situational judgment tests, all those kind of more complex things rather than just CVs or psychometric tests, for example. Yeah, I mean, with assessment centres, it's it's less the case that you would see an application of a- AI um, because of the fact that the volume is just quite quite a bit lower. Um, whereas with CVs, it, it has a clear a- applicability in that context because of the fact that a company, like a large company, might see tens of thousands of CVs, and it will really benefit from that kind of technology being applied. Um, if one was to apply AI to assessment centre ratings, then it comes back to this idea of making sure that the scores that the assessment centre generate generates um, are meaningful and have a structure that actually makes sense. Because if the AI is uh, being trained on a set of scores that are being used to predict an outcome, then all of the scores in that scenario need to make some sort of sense. They need to be structurally sound, they need to be reliable. And if it's dimensions, then it's very unlikely that that's going to be the case. Okay. Um, So just looking at like the sheer amount of different forms of assessment that organizations will use to actually hire someone. um, I don't know, personally, I find it a bit overwhelming, like just through applying for jobs, like there's like maybe four step processes or like five-step processes do you think that organizations need such a rigorous hiring process so that goes back to ancient china that's been with us for a very long time so the han and ming Ming dynasty um, used multi-level assessment um, and it it's still used to this day Um, do they need it yeah because they're making an investment a huge investment i mean um if you want to buy a new television, for example, you're probably going to look at your options, right? You're going to weigh them up against one another because it's a big investment. It's a big investment. And same with an organization. I mean, if you think about, and probably an even, well, oh, clearly a, a much bigger investment, at least if the TV doesn't work to your expectations, you might be able to take it back. Um, you can't just fire somebody, though. You can't just say you're fired. <laughs> you can't. Although we see that in the game shows, you can't do that. So 
once you bring someone on board and they don't work out, that can really present a problem, not only for the company, but also for the individual potentially as well. Um, and yeah, so companies, are, they're right to, to put some rigor into this and do whatever they can to try to minimize the risk and reduce the chances of there being a poor fit between the employee and the organization. Okay. So you think that more complex hiring processes are a lot better than, say, like a traditional hiring process of just a kind of CV and an interview? I um Well, it depends. So if they are using... Um, if they're using instruments to hire people that have very poor validity, then if you're just adding together tests that are not valid and you're putting lots of them together, then that's a really bad use of resources. I think what organizations need to do is to be much more strategic in their approach. Go to the research literature, find out what the best predictors are. You may want to balance the cold hard validity of um, a particular instrument against some of the potential downsides of it so for example we were talking about gma tests gma tests tend to have the worst record in terms of uh, subgroup differences so maybe organizations are very worried about that and they i think that is a, a valid concern so they may want to avoid that type of test what's left well, uh, for example, we know interviews are really good. Um, and if we have the resource available to use that kind of approach, maybe that's a cost-effective way of um, using a, a type of evaluation that has validity. Um, so take, for example, the cost-benefit of using an assessment center versus an interview. Uh, an interview tends to be a lot shorter, uh, less resource-intensive. Um, and the validities for interviews tend to be better than uh, than assessment centers slightly. Um, however, you might have advantages associated with assessment centers as well. So with assessment centers, maybe you can get more of your managers involved in that process. You get more buy-in, um, and that might be really important to a company. So the yeah, the decisions are quite quite complex in themselves. I don't think adding together a bunch of invalid tests is a good idea though you have to make sure that whatever you're including in your process um, has some evidence for its validity and reliability yeah that makes sense so if you were designing your own hiring process what would that look like finally someone's asked me to do this um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i would um i would look at what the the job requires first of all so what is the job? And I would identify that using a job analysis technique. So if you're building any sort of structure, house, whatever, you need a decent yeah. foundation, and that is your foundation. If you don't have knowledge about what the job is, about what tasks people are going to carry out, about what sort of knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics they need in order to do those sorts of jobs, um, then you haven't got a foundation. So you need to know that information first, and that comes from, from job analysis. There are some shortcuts to job analysis. Um, so there are job titles available online, and there's information about, about jobs online that you can get hold of, and that can kind of cut down the cost of doing a, a, a fully tailored job analysis. Um, but yeah, 
That's the foundation of the process. Once you've identified that, then you'll be able to match up the kinds of evaluations that are going to be most appropriate for evaluating the characteristics that are relevant to the job. Um, and also you need to think about um, time, budget constraints on you. Um, how many people are you evaluating? Like if you've got 10,000 people who are applying for your job, um, probably not going to be able to run an assessment center on that. Somehow you're going to have to have a multi-stage process where um, you are um, refining the the applicant pool down to a more manageable set. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of decisions. Some of them are practical, but also I think one needs to take into consideration validity information. So what predicts performance and what does so reliably um, and to to really only include those sorts of uh, evaluations in the assessment procedure. Now, one thing that I do find companies almost always do is they include um, a CV, right? Or a CV resume. Um, unfortunately, CVs are not very good predictors of performance. So that's an unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate research finding in a way, given how popular uh, that evaluation is. So I'm not sure that CEs are necessarily the best way to go about selecting people. I mean, they, they mm. on the surface, they're quite convenient, especially if you're applying AI to screen people and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the research evidence suggests they're not very good predictors of performance. Okay, it's quite interesting. I think especially because AI screens them out. So you can also argue how reliable is AI at predicting performance and how good candidate is yeah. actually going to be within your organization as well yeah um, what's yeah. it doing in the background how's it making these evaluations is yeah. it i mean so, so some evidence suggests that uh, ai has engaged if you want to call it that it's not really engaging in anything but um engaged in subgroup biases and the identification of um subgroup differences inadvertently for whatever reason. So that's something to, to check on as well if one's using AI. Uh, you don't want that in your selection procedure at all. Or you want to minimize it at least uh, to the greatest extent that you possibly can. So switching gears a little bit to reviews now, why do you think as people we find it difficult sometimes to give someone a review? Uh, are you talking about, um, so what do you mean by review? just like performance reviews like how well is your employee doing at their job or like 360 reviews oh, okay just like peer reviews so why do we find it difficult to do that um well i suppose part of it is um i mean i think there are multiple barriers to assessing performance effectively like first of all take my manager he's I would say probably the best manager I've had in my career. So I'm really lucky to have him as a manager. He's really good. Um, but he doesn't look at my performance all the time and he probably doesn't know what I'm doing all the time. Um, and so it's difficult without engaging in some sort of weird surveillance, which I know he wouldn't want to do anyway, <laughs> but some companies actually do that. Um, it can be difficult to get the data that you need to make a reasonable evaluation about whether someone's performing effectively or not. 
Um, so unless my boss is somehow watching me right now, I don't think he is. If he is, that's concerning, but I don't think he is. But um, then he wouldn't be able to evaluate my performance here and he wouldn't know, even know that I'm doing this. So, yeah, um, it can be difficult to get data, I think, um, without sort of getting into this area of uncomfortable, potentially unethical surveillance. So there are companies, and there's a famous case, you probably know it, um, about a bank in England surveilling its workers. And um, yeah, that was kind of uncomfortable and <laughs> potentially unethical. I don't know if they still do it. I hope not. But who wants to be surveilled the whole time? It's very distracting and it's it's anti-human, I think. And, we, and companies shouldn't do that. It's not like it just it's disempowering as well. So the employee, because they're being surveilled the whole time, they don't feel like the company has any trust in them whatsoever, that they they have to be surveilled in that way. It doesn't set up a very nice environment. In fact, it could set up a toxic environment, I think. Um, I suppose there are other barriers. So the other question. So we spoke about assessor training and assessment centers. Are managers trained in the same way for performance evaluation? And my experience has been that, that no, they're not. So manager one evaluates your performance and manager two evaluates your performance, but maybe they've got different ideas about what constitutes good versus not so good performance. And they haven't had the standard setting training, so they don't they don't have that shared understanding. Um so that could be another problem. Um, it could be a problem with dimensions. So the same problem that we see with assessment centers is also true for performance measures. Dimensions not working in the way that they're supposed to. And we know that that's the case as well, despite mm. training. Um, so maybe the dimension, performance dimensions that you're being evaluated on are not meaningful. So that could be another barrier. Um, another barrier could be a level of comfort with delivering negative information about performance, mm. uh, the legalities associated with that, the potential consequences, what happens when you want to manage poor performance, how do you do that, how do you do it in such a way that doesn't land you in trouble with HR, and there are so many considerations about about that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and in managers getting the right guidance for how to deal with uh, poor performance because poor performance is a thing that happens that does happen a lot but yeah. how to deal with it the information if you look online is often quite difficult to understand and it makes some it could very easily make a manager feel that well or make the judgment is it really worth it is it really worth getting engaged with this if it's going to land me in trouble yeah and what are your thoughts around peer reviews? Because I was reading an article recently and they said that colleagues find it quite hard to give appropriate feedback because of two reasons. And they were, they feel kind of torn between being uh, supportive and judgmental. And then if they're already within a good team, it can actually pull the team further apart rather than improving the team, um, which is kind of the opposite than of what you actually want to do. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that psychosocial type considerations are really important. I mean, we're not just sort of machines kind of operating and that kind of thing um, without any feelings, without any any perceptions. 
And of course, we're going to be concerned about how our behavior affects other people. And that includes providing feedback. So if you're in a group with, with me, for example, and I give you negative feedback, then that might very well create negative feeling. And it might upset the esprit de corps of the group and that could have negative knock-on consequences. So that might put me off giving any mm. negative feedback. I might just say, oh, yeah, she's brilliant, fantastic, great. Just because I want to – I don't want to kind of um, sour the, the atmosphere. Do you think that's doing a lot of harms, though, to the performance? Uh, well, if the if the individual involved is performing poorly – then yeah i mean it could actually um it could have a ne negative consequence for the performance of the organization if that's happening enough I mean, if you have one poor performer in a very large company then people around that poor poor performing employee can perhaps compensate for that to some extent it can be really frustrating for fellow employees um but at least there's some form of compensatory mechanism. In a small company, these effects are magnified hugely. So if you've got a company that has five people in it, and I, that may seem really small, but you know, from a country that I'm from, New Zealand, we often have very small companies. In fact, the entire economy is based on small companies. And if you have one poor performer, um, then that can cause a massive problem because there's no way that people can properly compensate for that in a small company. What are your thoughts on 360 critical feedback? 360 critical feedback. So one thing we know about 360s is that you get large, what we call source effects. And that is a bit of a confusing term. So allow me to explain. So with a, a source effect, what you have are people who group together in different perspective groups. So you have your managers and you might have multiple managers. You have your peers and you might have multiple peers. And let's say another group, you, you have executives and you have multiple executives within that group as well. So what we find is that the source effects so the managers, the executives and the peers, they tend to differ in their perspective. Right, so the manager might think that you're a poor performer, no good, and they rate you low. Your peer likes you, and they want to keep up the esprit de corps of the group, so they rate you high. The executives mm -hmm. haven't got a clue, so what they do is they give you a middle rating mm -hmm. because they want to sit on the fence because they don't really understand what is going on with this uh, with the performance of the specific individual. Um, so yeah, that. There could be different source perspective type reasons for a, a lower rating or a higher rating. And it very much depends on the perspective that the, the rater is taking. We know that because we see these source effects over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, what's my view on it? D do I think that having negative feedback is, is a positive thing for the company? Is that what you're asking? Or... Yeah, I think um, you do get poor performance in organizations for, from particular individuals. And I think that what managers need is the support and guidance for how to deal with that situation, because I think that that's something that's really lacking 
in uh, mm. in organizations because it's such a tricky situation for managers who are often overworked, are often super busy dealing with their own problems, see something like this as a major problem and just sort of think to themselves, I'd just rather not deal with it really. And that, I think, does have a negative potential consequence for an organization and also for other people that are having to compensate for that poor performance. Um, but it's it's necessary for the managers. I, I can understand their perspective. They need to get that guidance in order to manage poor performance because it is a thing and it's it's something that is probably the hardest part of management to, to deal with that. And does performance actually increase after these reviews? Well, not always. I mean, sometimes the the individual, let's, let's take a, an example of an individual who's a, a poor performer. They may just be in the wrong place and maybe they haven't got other options. Maybe they just haven't got other companies that they can apply for right now for various reasons. Maybe it's labor market issues that are constraining their decisions or or something like that. We don't know. Um, but maybe this is just a really poor fit and they don't feel good about the situation themselves, but they can't move on because they've got to pay the mortgage or whatever. They've got to pay their bills. Um, so that can be a really tricky situation uh, for, for somebody to be in as an employee, but also as a manager trying to, to deal with that situation. I think sometimes um, managers can work with employees to guide them to a position, to a better position where they feel uh, better about what they're doing, but also they feel more competent uh, in terms of the types of work that they're they're engaged in um and or maybe there are options within the company for them to move around to some other area where they may be more comfortable and maybe more productive and happier as well so yeah as you can see uh well-being ties into this as well and i think that's really important for organizations to to focus on uh, i think for many years going way back into the 70s no one cared about that stuff but I think it very much should be a focus now um, because I think if employees in an organization are happier, that just makes for a much better working environment. It's one that other employees will be attracted to and they'll want to work in that environment too. So it can really help you with, with your selection uh, of new employees and help to help the company to remain competitive. How often do you think people should be reviewed for their work? Well, the general guidance is around six months, every six months. Um, although sometimes that can be a, um, a bit cumbersome and some organizations do a performance review once a year. Um, other organizations want to do sort of mini performance reviews more often. So you might find that you're, you're, you're engaged in some sort of performance or development-based feedback uh, once a week. Um, some organizations have, so following on from, uh, there's a, a researcher called Kevin Murphy, and he, he is a really excellent, brilliant researcher, um, and he's got some really good ideas, but he's a, a big critic of performance evaluations and essentially thinks they just don't work at all. Uh, and he's got a point. He's got a point. Right. So some organizations share that idea, and they um, they focus not on performance, but always on development, so um, the developmental discussions. And I think that that can present a more positive frame for this. So we're not evaluating your performance, but we're working with you to to further develop your skills in ways that perhaps you want to develop them in and also to help the organization as well.
What do you think is the best way to review an employee? I don't think there is a best way. Um, I think that I think it needs to be based on observations. So um, I think it also needs to be based on allowing the employee to have a say because sometimes things can get misinterpreted. Um, you know, communication is difficult and there are misunderstandings that happen in organizations all the time. I can think of a case in point right now <laughs> where this is happening to me, um, where <sighs> there are misunderstandings that occur and miscommunications and things like that. And um, it's no one's fault. It's just that two people misunderstood each other. And and mm-hmm. there's a, a an outcome that needs to be worked through and developed and with a view to the future and getting better into the future, continuous improvement, that kind of thing. Um, And I think that should be the sort of more hopeful developmental focus. I think that is a better focus for organizations rather than a punitive focus, because it's so easy to sort of jump to the punitive conclusion. This negative outcome has happened. You're going down, that kind of idea. And I don't think that that's a good idea at all, because that doesn't, again, organizations really do need to focus on the well-being of employees, the the perceived empowerment of employees, and but they need to create the environment that fosters that kind of perception. Mm-hmm. So, about everything that we've talked about today, are there any future trends you see emerging or within your own research? Um, yeah. So, I think as time goes by, obviously, the more the more we learn about AI and its role the more we're going to see applications of that um, in in terms of its application in assessment centers. It could get involved in developing exercises. It could get involved in uh, perhaps norming scores for assessment centers as well. Um, one thing I'd like to see is much more of a focus, and this is probably, as we were talking about biases before, this is my bias because my research is on measurement. But I think there's not enough focus on measurement and there's not a enough focus on why measurement and good measurement is important. Um, it's sort of taken for granted, I think, that we're measuring things well because we've got this assessment centre. It, it looks grandiose and it must be doing what we say it's doing, but not necessarily. We actually have to analyse data from an assessment centre to figure out whether it's doing what we what we expect it to do. So I think organizations, I'm hoping that they will in future focus much more on the quality of the measurements that they are taking and to ensure that those sorts of measurements are actually measuring what it is that that organizational decision makers are intending to measure because those measures will be used to guide decisions. They are the basis for decision-making. And that can be decision-making for selection, can be decision-making for performance and development. Um, absolutely, they'll be used across the board. But you have to make sure that whatever you're using to guide a decision is reliable and valid. If it's not, then you may as well be basing your decisions on random data. And surely that's not going to lead to a, a good outcome for any one individual or for any organization. Yeah. So just to wrap up, I have a little tradition on this podcast where at the end of each episode, a guest has to write down some sort of like words of wisdom or something that they feel like is important. It doesn't have to be based around this conversation. 
Um, but as you're not here today, um, I thought like maybe you could just type them and like send it to me and I can just add them into my little book that I have. Um, but just as like a final, final question, um, what is one thing for the listener to take away from this conversation? Well, I, I'm guessing the listeners of this conversation are going to be people who are, are they going to be students applying for jobs? Is that likely to be the audience just or organisations? Just everyone. Surprisingly, I know like quite a lot of doctors <laughs> listen to my podcast okay. and like Fantastic. business people. Great. Okay. So we've got a yeah. wide audience. Yeah. Well, I'd say for people who are applying for jobs, just mm-hmm. I would recommend if you get the opportunity to practice the types of evaluations that you're going to um, that you're going to be engaging with. Um, and that will help you to reach that baseline level of performance. Um, yeah, and overcome practice effects. For organizations, I would say I would recommend that you don't make the assumption that your measures are evaluating what you think that they're measuring. Just because I think that some interview or assessment center is measuring competencies, it doesn't mean that it is. You have to actually check and enlist the help of someone. If you if you don't have those sorts of uh, statistical skills in-house, enlist the help of someone to help you to figure out whether those evaluations are measuring the constructs that you're intending to. Because if they don't, then you could be basing your decisions on on a faulty foundation. And you don't want that. No organization wants that. No uh, employee wants that. And once you figure out what it is that these uh, evaluation techniques are measuring, then you can set up a much stronger foundation for decision making. That makes sense. And thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. It was really nice meeting you. Thanks. Great. Nice <laughs> to meet you too.